following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Welcome this morning. Uh, You know, we've been uh, just grateful that he had a chance to hear from Pastor uh, Anthony a couple weeks ago. I trust he was an encouragement. great things. Uh, from what I understand, too, he's made a proposal to have us at some point switch congregations one Sunday morning. So I don't know how we're going to do that, but uh, no, it's just a great blessing. I bring you greetings from uh, Community of Faith Bible Church down in Southgate that I had the privilege to go and speak at while Pastor Kidd was up here, and we're hoping to do more of that, just again as a, a way to remind us that uh, we're part of one large universal body of Christ, and and just to be able to bless be blessed by one another. Uh, thanks too to Brock last week who uh, continued in our series on what's up on Sunday by addressing Sunday school. And a few weeks ago we began this summer series. Uh, I've called it what's up on Sundays and in thinking about it, I guess it's more like a fall series at this point since it's uh, September already. And can you believe that? It's September. My daughter's already been in school for three weeks. So it's incredible, but we're taking a short break from the minor prophets to consider, you know, again, why do we do what we do when we gather together on Sundays? Why do we sing? Why do we take communion? Why give? Why Sunday school, as Brock addressed last week? Why sermons? And in addition to the why, we also need to think about the how, right? How do we do these things in a way that would bring the most honor to Christ? In fact, if you remember back to the first message from the series, that's what I talked about, is that the most important issue is what God wants us to be doing and how He wants us to be doing it, right? Today I want to focus on something that receives the, the most attention and that we give the most time to when we gather together on Sunday mornings, and that is the sermon, the subject of sermons. Webster's defines sermons as a sermon as a religious discourse delivered in public, usually by a clergyman, as part of a worship service. And now our kids, I think, tend to expand that definition a little bit when, uh, you know, they tell us that we're preaching a sermon to them every time we're talking to them about their homework and their chores, right? But in our context, a sermon is a message that explains a biblical truth and calls us to live it out. And so it's the task of the faithful preacher to first learn what did the original biblical author intend for his original audience to understand. That's what we call exegesis, drawing out from the text what was its meaning at the time that it was given. And then from that, the preacher is to then understand the timeless truths that undergird that meaning so that they, we could then understand how do they apply to us today in a different context, in a different circumstance. We call that expositional or expository preaching. And we saw an example of that earlier from Ezra in Nehemiah 8, how he not only read the scriptures, but he explained them so that the people could understand what they mean. We see sermons all throughout scripture. Deuteronomy is a book that contains a series of sermons that were delivered by Moses to the people in the plains of Moab before they were to enter into the promised land. The prophetic books that we have been in, they are a compilation of sermons, messages that were given by the prophets to the people of Judah, to the people of Israel, and at times to the nations around them. 
The Gospels and Acts record a number of sermons given by Christ and his apostles. Even the book of Hebrews appears to be a sermon that was delivered and then transcribed for us to have today. From the very beginning, the church, God's people have gathered to hear sermons. It says in Acts 2 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching when they gathered with one another. At the end of Paul's last letter, he exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1 with these words, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That word that Paul uses there to preach is this idea of a public declaration. And so all of this tells us that a public declaration, proclamation, explanation of the Scripture, that one that calls for a response to it, that, that this is a key part of our gathering together. For we gather to worship God, right? Right? And so we gather to hear from Him. The sermon, as God intended, is much more than a religious discourse as part of a worship service, right? Right? Just before his exhortation to preach the word, Paul said of the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for what? For every good work. But to be equipped by God's spirit for every good work means that we need to hear from his word, right? It needs to be explained. And that's why Paul so strongly urged Timothy to proclaim the word no matter what. And so this places an immense responsibility upon the one proclaiming his word, doesn't it? The preacher must be faithful to to diligently study, to understand what the original author intended for the original audience to know. Preacher must diligently study that. He must apply it to his own life and then be able to clearly explain it. That's The example we've been given from Ezra, who it says studied the law, practiced it, and then taught it. And as a result of that, the the preacher then receives a lot of attention during a sermon. He tends to be the focus of the sermon. And while that focus is warranted, there's another key participant within the sermon process that often gets overlooked. The Bible indeed has much to say about the preacher's responsibility But it has a lot more to say about the listener's responsibility. About you. Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard said this. People have an idea that the preacher is an actor on a stage and that they are the critics blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. And he, the preacher, is merely the prompter standing in the wings reminding them of their lost lines. Or Charles Spurgeon said, We are told men ought not to preach without preparation. Granted, but we add men ought not to ought now to hear without preparation. Which do you think needs the most preparation, the sower or the ground? I would have the sower come with clean hands, but I would have the ground well plowed, well turned over, and the clods broken before the seed comes in. It seems to me that there is much more preparation needed by the ground than by the sower more by the hearer than by the preacher, end quote. And you know, as I, as I thought about this topic of sermons this week, and there were a lot of directions that can be taken in regards to, to that and what to talk about, 
I realized that there's a lot of instruction that's out there for the one doing the preaching, but there's very little for the one doing the listening. There are not a lot of resources. Not a lot has been written or said about that outside of the scripture. And in our hedonistic age, it's not made it much easier to be active, prepared, engaged listeners like the ones that Spurgeon was referring to. I mean, think about all the activities in our culture, all the things that we do. Every time that we participate in something, a television, an event, a sport, a, a go on vacation, exercise, concerts, even most books and magazines, a lot of these activities do not challenge us to think, but only to observe. They do not challenge us to reason. Instead, they condition us to be passive receivers, don't they? I mean, think about how active are you when you sit down to watch something? And again, I'm not condemning watching TV or, or going to sporting events, but, but think about they aren't set up so that we are engaged in the event except to observe it, right? It's a passive process. I came across a government study that showed last year Americans over the age of 15 spent on average about five and a half hours a day engaged in leisure activities like the ones I mentioned. Former Wheaton College president Dwayne Litvin said this, Western society today is basically an eye-oriented rather than an ear-oriented culture. As this tendency to depend upon the eye has grown, our ability to listen has atrophied from disuse. I think he has a point. I mean, again, think about it. When you sit down perhaps to watch something on TV, how much preparation do you really need to engage in that event? Maybe grabbing some food from the fridge and picking the channel that you watch, right? And that's as far as it goes. Again, I'm not condemning watching TV necessarily, but, but our preparation when we come to God's Word should not be with that same attitude, right? It should involve much more. Question 160 of the Westminster Catechism asks, What is required of those that hear the word preached? I would ask you, how do you think they answered that question? More importantly, how do you think God answers that question? What does he expect of those who hear the word preached? Well, he's given us his answer, and that answer is found in James chapter 1. So please turn there with me, James 1. For it is in James 1 verses 19 to 25 that we will find three attributes of what Pastor Ken Ramey calls the expository listener. As you're turning to James, you'll remember that James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. And he opened his letter by speaking of trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And then he talks about, in the midst of those trials, if you lack wisdom to ask of God, and he will give it. And then towards the end of chapter 1, James talks about the source of that wisdom, the word of God. And in doing that, he also reveals how we are to respond to that word. And so if you would please stand with me as I begin to read from James chapter 1. I'll be starting in verse 18. It is there God says through James, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Know this, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, Slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And be doers of the word, 
and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. Let's not take a moment to ask God to bless his word as we look into it. Father, I do thank you. Thank you for our brother James, Lord, for prompting him to write these words, these words inspired by you. Thank you that you've given us your word, that, Lord, that you've given us the ability by your spirit to understand. And I pray, Lord, that he would be at work in our hearts now to give us understanding that you would as... We just sung a moment ago, show us Christ through your truth, through his word. We ask in his name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now here in verse 18, James says that God brought us forth or literally gave birth to us. A reference to salvation, to being born again. That he brought us forth by how? What does he say? They brought us forth by the word of truth. And notice here that he talks about that, the word of God. And the word of God, its foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the son of God who came into this world to save sinners. Through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, he has made a way to be forgiven for any who would repent and put their trust in him. And by his death, we can know him. If we have faith and trust in him, that is the foundational truth where the the scriptures have aimed directly to the son of God, the redeemer, as Lorena is going to be talking about this Saturday. And we come to believe by hearing the words of our redeemer, the word of truth, as James calls it here, the scriptures. And in the verses that follow verse 18, James gives three attributes that characterize how we should respond when we hear that word of truth first attribute that he focuses on in verses 19 and 20 is to be teachable the second in verse 21 is to be receptive and the third in verses 22 to 25 is to be obedient let's look again at verses 19 and 20 to see the first call to the hearer is to be teachable many see these two verses in james 1 verses 19 and 20 as an isolated proverb that's often quoted as a regarding a, being quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of god and so many see that as an isolated proverb that james has given and they see a lot of the the things that james says in his book as that it's often characterized as a letter that's like the proverbs that are these randomly placed statements throughout his letter but a careful study of james shows that there is a logical flow of progression with james that he covers theme after theme and then within each theme within each paragraph at times he gives a proverbial saying to make a point as part of what he's communicating as part of that theme and here in verses 19 to 25 the theme is how to respond to the word of god it is clear that these verses all are focused around the word of God as we see it mentioned several times. Before verse 19, we see it in verse 18. He refers to the word of truth. And then after verse 20, we see it in verse 21, the word implanted. Verse 22, the word. And again, referencing it in verse 23, the word. And then again in verse 25, it's the perfect law, the law of liberty. And so clearly by these several references to the word of God, we see that that is the focus, both 
before verse 19 and after verse 20. And notice, too, the commands given. The main command in verse 21 is to receive the word implanted. The command in verse 22 is to be doers of the word. And so since we have these verses stemming from 18 to 25 that focus on the word of God, and these two commands in verse 21 and 22, which explicitly talk about how to respond to the word of God, so then the command in verse 19 must also be in reference to how to respond to the word of God. It's not just a general statement about communication. It is a specific statement about our communication with God, especially his with us and how we are to respond when he communicates to us. That command is let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Technically, it's a it's a threefold command, but they all center around. They all focus on the same idea, the same attitude that we must be attentive to the scriptures. There was a well-known proverb that was written by Joshua ben Sirach about 200 or so years before Christ. In that proverb, which you can find in the book, his book of Ecclesiasticus and the Apocrypha, he says, be swift to hear and with patience give answer. It appears James may have borrowed from this proverb or been alluding to it here. And here again, specifically speaking about how we are to respond to the word of God, that we are to be quick to hear him and we are to be slow to speak when he speaks. These are both companion ideas. They convey this idea of an attentive attitude that we should have. Being quick to hear means what? Right. If you're quick to hear, you have the picture maybe of turning your head to listen. It's an eagerness to hear, an eagerness to listen. Being slow to speak is what? It's waiting, right? It's being patient before responding. It is thinking about listening to what that other person is saying. You hear that a lot. You know, that's an important part of communication, isn't it? Not to be heard, but to hear. And so we are to be slow to speak. Be slow to anger as the idea of giving careful attention to what is said rather than reacting if you don't agree. And these three statements together, they point to a teachable heart. They, they point to a heart that is excited to hear from God. They, they point to a heart that wants to submit to his word. And so in light of the tone here from James, we need to ask ourselves these questions. Do these statements characterize you? When you come before listening to the word of God, when you open it to read it, are you quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? Do you eagerly anticipate hearing the word? Are sermons something you look forward to? Do you enjoy reading books that explain passages or principles from the word of God? Do you have a strong desire to learn more about him through his word? Or are you slow to hear? Is it an effort for you to focus on a sermon do you give little attention to those passages that are familiar to you when they are read or explained is reading the bible for you a chore rather than a delight would you be more excited to hear from someone famous than hear from god has familiarity with his word his bible has that dulled your enthusiasm to hear it and to read it Have you heard so many sermons that listening to another one is just not that exciting? Have you gotten used to God's word? Or are you one who James encourages us to be, one who is quick to hear? And are you one who is slow to speak? Again, that idea of being slow to speak, it it means to be patient, but not just with your mouth, 
but also with your thoughts. Right? We know how that works. You're talking to somebody. And what is typically happening? You start thinking about either things you want to say before they're done or maybe something else. To be slow to speak is especially difficult discipline because it incorporates, again, not only talking out of turn or talking over another person or not listening. It also involves what's happening within your mind before that. Studies have shown that a person can speak at 100 to 200 words per minute, or in my case, when I'm very excited, maybe 300. But the same studies have shown that we can listen to over 400 words a minute. So my question to you is, what are you doing in the time I'm trying to catch up? Where are you? Reading. Thank you. This is my point. Right? How is your mind engaged in the process? Are you being slow to speak, even with your thoughts? Are you thinking of ways to apply? You know, one thing that I have found that really helps me in keeping my thoughts focused, because at times I can hear very quickly... But one thing that's helped me a lot is to take notes. Take notes. It's a simple practice. And if you think about it, it is a situation where not only are my ears involved, but also my eyes and my hands, right? And my mind is in more engaged because as I'm listening, I'm thinking, what am I going to write down here? How am I going to articulate these things on paper or for uh, our new generation, the iPads? You can write notes on those now. What does that do? When all those actions are engaged, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your thoughts, they're all helping you to be focused on what's being said. I know some may be thinking, take notes. (laughs) Come on, that's work. That makes us, then it'd be more like a class that we're coming to. I mean, the sermon, isn't that something I'm just supposed to experience? I just want to come and, and listen and take it in. But brothers and sisters, that's just our passive listening culture talking there. I think note taking has become a lost art. Because I believe we've become lazy listeners. We don't want to make the effort to be fully engaged. And so my encouragement to you is why not start today? There are some notepads right in front of you in the pew. You can take a page off and and start writing some notes. And, And I understand there's no specific passage that commands note taking to be done or it's a sin. But you know, it's one of the ways I have found to be the most helpful to encourage me to be engaged, to being slow to speak and quick to hear. Again, the whole point of all this is to recognize this very thing that this worship service is not considered or not to be an event that we come to observe, but it is a gathering that we come to participate in. It's a big difference. Being quick to hear and slow to speak means that we must be active, not passive listeners. Amen? Amen. In addition to being quick to speak and, or quick to hear, excuse me, and slow to speak, James adds a third when he says, be slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, how does that relate to the first two? Okay, quick to hear and slow to speak, it makes sense. Those go together. But what does he mean when he adds this and be slow to anger? What's he driving at? How is it connected? Well, just think about that. When you hear the word preached, do you often like what you hear? Didn't Paul say in 2 Timothy that Scripture is profitable for reproof and correction? Didn't he say to him, as Timothy was to preach, that he was to reprove, reprove, man, that word's hard, reprove, rebuke, and exhort? 
When hearing the word preached, do you find yourself often thinking, oh, yes, rebuke me. This is very encouraging. Expose my faults and weaknesses. Show me my sin. Yeah, that that really hurts. Give me some more. I like it. Actually, it's often more like, ouch, (laughs) I don't like what you're saying. That's convicting. Say something encouraging. That hits a little too close to home. Move on to something else. There's nothing to see here. Let's move on. There are times we, we, to be honest with ourselves, we don't like what we hear, right? And so we may be tempted to anger. We may be tempted to be dismissive or to be critical or to not listen. That's what James is talking about here. King Ahab said of the prophet Micaiah, I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Every time this guy shows up, he just talks about my sin and I don't like it. Paul said in Galatians 4.16, Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? He was very strong with them in that letter. We don't like rebuke. But we all struggle with sin, don't we? We all struggle with it. And so we all need the penetrating word of God to expose that sin, to bring confession and repentance, right? To show us the example of Jesus Christ and how he walked by the spirit and dealt with temptation and dealt with those situations in his life as an example to us. We need to read and study and understand and meditate on these things. We need to hear them from the word of God. But oftentimes that means our sin is going to be exposed. That God will poke our hearts as his truth is explained. But James says if we respond in anger to that, that that will not achieve the righteousness of God. That that we will shut out what he's trying to tell us. And so then in our lives we will not exhibit the godly Christ-like behavior that the Lord expects from us. Which is why he speaks to us in his word. And so we need to be open to God's correction. We need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Which means we need to be teachable. And in addition to being teachable, we must also be receptive. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The main command there in that verse is receive. Receive the word. That means to accept it, to grasp it, to to welcome it, to embrace it. Even have the idea of showing it warm hospitality. Acts 17.11 says of the Bereans that they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were commended not only for their desire to be discerning, but their eagerness to, to to learn and hear and understand what God has said. And in that case, through the preaching of Paul. And notice in verse 21, what does James say about how we are to receive the word? He gives two ways there, two means in which we are to receive it. Do you see them there? It says they're putting aside and in humility. Now, if you have an ESV or NIV Bible, it may show that putting aside or putting away as a command. But in the original, the verb is a participle. Receive is in the imperative. So putting away here is subordinate to receive. It can have an idea of a command, but it's still subordinate to the idea of receive. Receive is the main command being offered here. And a way that we are to receive is by putting aside. And what is it we're called to put aside? It says they're all sin and all wickedness, or filthiness and all wickedness. 
That word put away is normally used literally to put off clothing, to take off clothing. And it's often used in a figurative sense in putting off sin. It's often used talking about morally putting off sinful thoughts and actions. It refers to a renouncing of sin, a a commitment to flee from it and a desire to be clean before Jesus. And so we're to receive the word by having a repentant heart that wants to be holy. You've probably heard the saying often, right? The word keeps you from sin, but sin keeps you from the word. And it's true. That word filthiness here in verse 21, it literally refers to refuse, to grime. Aristotle used the word with the same root to refer to earwax. And what happens when you get too much wax built up in your ear? Right? It not only hinders your ability to hear, it's also pretty gross. And sin is like that. Not only is it gross, but also it, it forms this like a wax in your ear that reduces your ability to hear God. Sin dampens your hunger for the word. Sin clouds your ability to understand it. And sin hardens the heart from receiving it. And if sin is being entertained, then the soil of the heart will not be ready to welcome God's truth, nor will it be prepared to receive his instruction, his examination, his reproof. You know, we talk a lot about as we come to communion to to celebrate the Lord's death on our behalf and and look forward to his resurrection. We talk a lot about examining ourselves when we come to communion, don't we? Well, in the same way, we need to examine ourselves when we're preparing to hear the word of Christ. When you open your Bible to read it, when you hear it being proclaimed, you must first change your filthy garments. You must come with a repentant heart. I mean, think about this. If if you had a special guest who was coming over to your place for dinner, would you keep the same clothes on that you did your yard work in as you welcome that person? Would you, uh, maybe if you've just gone to Burbank Athletic Club or, or 24-Hour Fitness, you've been working out, you got your dirty sweats on, you're going to keep them on as you welcome this guest into your home? Or clothes maybe that you had not washed in a week or more? I guess maybe if you're... A guy in college, that might be the case. But for most of us, right, we, we change our clothes, don't we? we? We get cleaned up. Why do we do that? Why do we do that in preparation for this guest to come? What would it communicate to our guest if we didn't? If they showed up and we were unprepared, we were dirty, we were smelly. point here is just as you would change out of your dirty garments when welcoming an honored guest into your home, so too you must remove the moral filth from your heart through repentance when welcoming the word of God there. Jesus expects us to confess our sins and has died so that he could cleanse us from our sins, right? First John 1 9, if you confess your sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You see, at the end of the day, this is an issue of respect, of reverence, of honor, of recognizing that when the Bible is opened, God is speaking. And he deserves a repentant heart. James reinforces this in verse 21 when he says next that we must also receive the word in what? See it there, right? In humility. In humility. That idea there's in meekness. In gentleness, it's opposite of anger. Rather than flaring up in anger, as he said in verse 19, 
we are to welcome the word when it's preached in meekness. Because anger is something that exalts self, right? Anger is something that refuses to welcome or to listen to what God says. But meekness exalts God. Desires to receive all that he has to say. Just as God said in Isaiah 66 too, But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. Didn't we see this example of humility from the people in Nehemiah 8? They read from earlier. When Ezra read and explained the scriptures to them, do you remember how did they respond? Were they attentive? Were they eager to listen? Were they expository listeners? Were they teachable? Were they humble in receiving the word? Nehemiah 8.3, if you translate it literally, it says, The ears of all the people were toward the book of the law. I like that. That picture is Ezra begins to unwrap, unroll the scroll that the ears turn immediately toward the book. An eagerness to hear. When Ezra opened that scroll as he was unrolling it, what did the people do? Do you remember how they responded? What did they do? They stood up, didn't they? Now, why did they do that? Was it time to stretch? You know, we got the seventh inning stretch. They're like, oh, this would be a good time to kind of get the kinks out. Was that why they stood up? Yeah, exactly. They stood up because that was an outward sign of a reverent welcoming of what they were going to hear. They wanted to hear desperately what Ezra was going to say from the word of God. And they understood that it was the word of God. And so as God was speaking, they would stand at attention. And do you remember how long were they standing? It said from dawn, from from morning until midday, dawn until noon, they stood and they listened. And more than that, it said in verse 6 that when Ezra opened the scroll and he blessed the Lord, the great God, all the people answered, Amen and Amen, when lifting up their hands, then bowing low and worshiping the Lord with their faces to the ground. <laughs> what a picture. Just as the, the Bible was being opened, the scroll was being unrolled, Ezra hadn't even read it yet. These people stand at attention and they lift their arms in praise and bow before God because God was speaking to them. And they worshipped. That's an amazing picture. And as they were listening, as Ezra preached, as the word was being explained, they began to weep for what they were hearing as that it was exposing their sin. They had a repentant heart. Which Ezra then later said, this is a time of rejoicing for God is speaking to us. And they had a great festival of joy. It says, because they came to understood the word. What a picture. What do you think of that response? And more importantly, would you say that kind of response describes us? Does it describe you? If I said right now, you know, Tim, Tim Adams and I got together, we decided today we're going to change the schedule. We're going to just have preaching from now until, you know, three o'clock or so today. Would your first inclination be amen or, oh boy. We didn't. Let's do it. All right. We didn't change the schedule today, though. That may be something for us to consider. But think about could you sit for hour after hour and listen eagerly and attentively as the people did in Ezra's day? 
1541, John Calvin wrote the ecclesiastical ordinances of the church in Geneva. And in them, he had several prescriptions for various aspects of church life. And one of those was he prescribed that the saints should attend a Sunday service in the morning, a catechism for children at noon, and a second sermon Sunday afternoon. And during the week that they would have sermons on Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. It's basically six messages a week. And yet how many of us can barely handle one? In our Bible reading... How many of us are simply just moving the bookmark as we read? If you're a follower of Christ, if, if you're a child of God, if, if you've been brought forth by the word of truth, then there will be a love and a hunger and a desire for the word of Christ, right? Ken Ramey said in his book, Expository Listening, one of the clearest evidences that a person truly has been born again is a love for God's word. And when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in John eight forty seven, he said, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Or in John ten twenty seven, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. See, the point being is that if, if you love Christ, you will love His word, because it is His voice speaking through His word. And it's His voice that tells of who He is and what He has done and how we may live for Him. And so, we would love it. Right? So James says, we should respond to that Word, first with a teachable heart that is attentive, and then with a receptive heart that is humble and repentant, and then thirdly, with a heart that is obedient. Look at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers, of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves right here we notice the progression that we have here in james james begins with this idea of listening attentively and then moves to this welcoming almost like the idea of you know someone that's at your front door that you're speaking with having a conversation with then you welcome them into your home and then this third step that james mentions this third characteristic is to then follow respond do be obedient to what God's word has said. God expects us to be attentive. He expects us to welcome his word. But that's all to the end that we would do something with it, right? God has no interest in having heads full of knowledge, but hearts devoid of applying that knowledge. That's what Christ was getting at with the Pharisees. You know a lot of stuff, guys. But you don't know me and you don't really care what I want you to do, right? Didn't he say, how can you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? The Bible's not written just for information, but so that we would know and follow Jesus Christ. Remember, too, you remember when Jesus commissioned us to make disciples? How did he say we were to do that? By one, baptizing, right? And by teaching them to know all that he has commanded, right? That's a trick question. Teaching them to know? Teaching them to observe. Yes, that implies knowing, but observe, keep, obey, follow all that he has commanded. You see, we aren't just to hear, we're also to heed. And that word hear that James uses in verse 22, it's, it's an interesting word. Uh, 
Theologian D. Edmund Hebert says that it was a common term that was used among the Greeks to talk about those who would attend uh, lectures, but they were not disciples or students of the lecturer. That means that they heard the instruction, but they were not required and did not choose to follow it. They were just auditing. It might be even a better translation. They were auditors. I remember auditing a class, and actually in classical Greek at UCLA, and it was great, you know. I didn't have to do the homework. I didn't have to take the exams. I didn't have to do the reading. And for a while, it seemed like a good thing until I realized, you know, I'm not learning much here. <laughs> Why is that? Why didn't I learn much? Not just because Greek is hard, but I had no accountability. Right? There was nothing holding me accountable to, to doing what was required in order to learn. I was just auditing. I wasn't accountable for the information. And you know, our churches are full of auditors. They're full of those who listen to God's word being preached, but do little or nothing to apply it to their own lives. And we too can be caught in that trap. We hear often from the scriptures here as we gather Sunday morning and Sunday school classes and Bible studies, small groups, all these things. And we can be tempted to be passive listeners who are simply auditing the class. I mean, just ask yourself, what what is it that makes a good sermon for you? For you to say that was a good message. The preacher's oratory skill, the the passion in which it was proclaimed, the, the fact maybe that your emotions were stirred or that you learned something new. Or is it because you have been shown something to help you, to encourage you to be a more faithful follower of our Lord Jesus Christ? Many in our circles can be enamored with the preacher or the message, but do nothing with it. Apparently, that was the case in Ezekiel's day. If you're catch, caught up with your reading in our year of the Bible, today you'd actually be reading this text from Exodus 33, where God speak Exodus, Ezekiel 33, where God, I am caught up, I'm not back in Exodus, where God said to Ezekiel these words, But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and sit down before you as my people and hear your words. But they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. God's telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you're you're a rock star preacher. People love to hear you. You speak eloquently and poetically like music to them. And they they love to come and listen. In fact, they tell each other, hey, let's go listen to Ezekiel today and see what he has to say. But see, God was not praising the people in that. It was an indictment because he said the people love to hear you, but they don't do what you tell them to do. They were auditors. The same could be said of Benjamin Franklin. You know, he loved to go hear George Whitfield preach. George Whitfield was the voice of the Great Awakening, along with Jonathan Edwards. An amazing preacher. In 1739, Franklin wrote these words about George Whitfield. His delivery was so improved by frequent repetition that every accent, every emphasis, every modulation of voice was so perfectly well-tuned and well-placed that without being interested in the subject... 
one could not help being pleased with the discourse. A pleasure of much the same kind with that received from an excellent piece of music. (laughs) The same thing as the people in Ezekiel's day. He loved to hear what Whitfield and how he spoke, but he could care less about responding to the message. Franklin didn't believe the message, but he enjoyed hearing it. But you see, God doesn't speak for our entertainment. He speaks so that we would be repentant. He's not given his word to be admired for its aesthetic qualities. And it has a number of wonderful aesthetic qualities. It's a beautiful book, but he gave it to us to be obeyed. God has spoken to us so that we would take action, so that we would do what he said. Isn't that what we've seen in going through the minor prophets this year? You think about in every sermon they preached, in every message they delivered, in every word they spoke, there was an expectation of a response, of repentance, of recognizing their sin and turning from it, putting their trust in the Lord. God expected a response. He wanted action. He wanted repentance. He wanted to see change. And so James says that, verse 22, anyone who hears the word and doesn't take action, they're only being self-deceived about their own true spiritual condition. And then look at verse 23 where he goes on to give an illustration. He says this, if anyone is a hearer, an auditor of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So James here, he's he's illustrating a contrast between hearers and doers. The question is, What is he exactly contrasting here? Is he contrasting what the two people are looking at? The mirror versus the law of liberty? Is he contrasting how they are looking at it? Looking versus intently looking? Or is the the contrast here the result of their looking? Forgetting versus doing? Well, the hearer, the auditor here, he's described like a, a man who looks at himself in a mirror. Back then they didn't have... Glass mirrors in James' day, they had polished bronze or silver or some even perhaps gold. It wasn't a perfect reflection, but, but you could see clear enough to see yourself in that reflection. The picture James is giving here is the person who has heard his word and now has the opportunity to examine himself in light of what he heard, just like you might do when you look into a mirror. The word has exposed some things in his life. Just like a mirror exposes one's blemishes, if you care to look. I don't spend a lot of time in front of the mirror for obvious reasons. But he looks. He looks in the mirror that's been exposed. And some say that his look in verse 23 was a quick glance. And they say that that's the contrast here, that that the hearer just looks quickly, but the doer actually looks Intently, but the word here for look in verse 23 actually has the idea of carefully observing, of contemplating, of thinking about. I don't think that's the contrast here. The issue is not that he gave a quick glimpse. I think he sat there a moment, perhaps with a twinge of conviction. The problem was for him the fact that he looked, but then he gave no weight, no importance to the blemishes that he saw, to what was exposed by the mirror of the word. Instead, he walked away from the mirror, from the self-reflection. He didn't give it another thought. He immediately forgot what he saw. 
Now the doer, he too looks in the mirror. Or James just refers to it directly in verse 25 as the law of liberty, the perfect law. The hearer, or excuse me, the doer looks into the perfect law, looks into that mirror, and he considers as well what has been exposed by the law in his heart. But his response is what is different, right? The hearer looks, walks away, forgets. The doer looks and considers and ponders and thinks about and doesn't forget. You see, for the auditor, he looks, but whatever conviction, whatever application, whatever instruction on how to apply, whatever proof, that's gone by the time he pulls out of the church parking lot. But the doer, on the other hand, takes that conviction, takes the reproof, the instruction, and he applies it to his life. He doesn't forget. He does something with it. James says here he abides by it. That's the idea of remaining, persevering in it. He's living it out. For him, the sermon does not end with the preacher's prayer. That's actually when it begins. The sermon was the launching point for living it out by the grace of God and the example of Christ. And so I want you to take a moment. Hold up the mirror and look. Look intently at your reflection. Are you the auditor or the doer? Do you come just to listen to the message or do you come with a heart that's prepared and desires to do something with it? As the word is proclaimed, are you actually and actively considering how you were applying it? And that's another advantage, beloved, to taking notes. You can write things down as the Spirit of God brings a thought or application to your mind. Because it's so easy to forget. I would encourage you before, during, and after the sermon to ask yourself these questions. What did I learn? That's the picture of looking into the law intently. What do I need to work on? That's the process of seeing what the law of liberty, what the scriptures has shown in your life for you to work at. How am I going to make this a part of my life? That's being the effectual doer. That's the one abiding by the law of liberty. And before you lower your mirror, I want you to look once more and to ask yourself, are you a person who takes action, desires to respond? Or once the sermon is over, do you not give it a second thought? You know, brothers and sisters, I I understand very clearly, I am accountable for what I say up here. I'm accountable for understanding and rightly and clearly and accurately explaining the truths of the Scripture. But beloved, you too are accountable for what you hear. Not only must I practice what I preach, you must practice what you hear. Amen? And you know, you can't blame any forgetfulness on the effectiveness of the preacher, whether he or, in this case, me, whether I'm boring or not, whether I speak with great conviction or not, whether I'm compelling or not or or engaging or not, and I need to work at these things, I understand that. But at the end of the day, the scroll's been opened. The book has been explained, hopefully accurately and clearly. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Will it simply be another message that is forgotten? 
Because, brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous place to be. If, if you have a habit of leaving here, of whenever you spend time in the Word, of walking away and forgetting it, that's a dangerous habit. Because what can happen at some point, your heart will become hardened to that Word. Matthew Henry said, The same heat that softens wax hardens clay. Don't let that be you. Well, time has run out on us, or is running out, but there's one more thing before you go that I want to remind you of. It's something that's often overlooked when it comes to listening to sermons. And that is, you know, look around you for a minute. You're not listening to this sermon alone. Just as the early church, they gathered together to hear. They were devoted continually to the apostles' teaching. So too we gather together to hear. And listening together means this, that we can help one another be doers. In fact, that's what God intends. That we, as a community, help one another to apply His Word as we hear it together. I came across a tweet from Christian rapper Lecrae who said this, Sermons bring conviction. Community builds commitment. Need them both. In a succinct way, he has expressed, I think, a very important truth. We don't live in a vacuum as Christians, right? We live in a community. And that means we don't listen to his word in isolation. Some of you may remember our Kiwi brother, Nigel Shaler. Well, Nigel wrote a dissertation. He's a smart guy. He wrote a dissertation. And he wrote it on what he called community sermon listening. It's a very interesting uh, dissertation. And one of the things he said in it was that one of the results of our individualistic society is that even though we may have people sitting all around us in the pews, we often still listen alone. He says that we have forgotten how to listen to a sermon in community. And I think that can be a danger of listening to sermons online or CDs or things like that, which I encourage you to listen as much as you can. But we have to be careful that we don't develop habits of this is a thing just for me. I'm listening to this message for me, to me, so that I can respond. We have to be careful that we don't bring that attitude in when we gather together. That we listen to the sermon together as a community to respond and help one another to respond to it. So before the sermon, be praying for one another to, to respond in the way James calls us to, to be attentive, to be welcoming, receiving, to, to be obedient. And pray for me. Pray for the one proclaiming the word, teaching the word, that he would be accurate and clear and rightly reflect what Christ would want spoken. And during the sermon, encourage one another by being engaged in the message yourself, by being responsive, by getting enough sleep the night before so you're not nodding off, by responding with amen or being engaged in that. That's okay. I like to hear that. And I think it encourages that. What did you say? Why did you say amen? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right? But just whatever, ways that we are engaged. That's why I try to ask you questions, to have you think about. This is, again, we're to be active participants, not passive listeners. After the message, ask each other 
what you've learned, how you apply it. Commit to pray for one another. Pick one person and just come up with some ways or talk about some ways. What did you learn? What was something that God exposed in you? How can I help you live it out? There are many ways that we can help one another not be a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. And that's what God intends our fellowship to be. To be spurring one another on to love and good deeds. To be encouraging, coming alongside one another day after day. So that we could be helping one another be accountable. We can be helping one another in our battle with sin. To be praying for one another. To be encouraging one another to be doers of the word. So there, I've, I've given you one application to think about. Pick somebody today. Talk about a message today. And how you will be a doer from what you have heard. Jesus ended his sermon on the mount, a message that most say is the greatest sermon ever recorded. Jesus concluded his message with these words. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been, it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus wasn't giving some cute little children's story. He was explaining a very sobering truth. That when he speaks, we need to listen and respond in dependence upon him and seeking his grace to live it out. But we must have an attitude to be doers, not hearers. So that our house is not destroyed in the storm of judgment. See, it's all about Jesus. It's his word. It's all about what he has said. For only Jesus has the words of eternal life, right? We sung that just a few moments ago. Only him. So in closing, I, I want to give you time to look at the mirror once more. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give you an opportunity for you to, in silent prayer, prayerfully consider how you will be a doer of the word. And not just to hear. Ask the Lord to to show you something that you can work on from today even. That you'll be an effectual doer. Alright, so I'll pray first and then give you a moment to pray. Lord, again, we're so grateful. So grateful that you have spoken to us. Spoken to us through through the prophets. And Lord, in these last days through your Son. Thank you. You've given your spirit to give us understanding, to bring conviction, to motivate us to respond. Lord, I pray that he would be at work in all of our hearts, even at this moment. Lord, and if there are any here, Father, who are not hearers, doers, because they are those who do not know you, that, that Lord, your spirit would work in their hearts and bring conviction, that they would desire to follow Christ, to confess their sins and ask His forgiveness. Lord, I pray now 
these moments of silence that, Lord, you would bring to each of our hearts some area that you desire us to work on in applying your word spoken. Lord, do not let us leave this place and forget what you have said. Lord, move in us to come alongside one another and help one another by the power of your Spirit to to live out the truths that we have heard from you. And Lord, make that a habit for all of us, Father, every time we read or study or hear from your word that we would be effectual doers who abide by it. Thank you for your Son who gives us the example and how we can live it out. We pray these things in His name. Amen.